Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up, state leaders reach a deal to reopen North Carolina schools. We'll get an update on the rest of the General Assembly's week and opioid deaths spiked during the pandemic. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with Carolina Journal, communications consultant Donna King, Robert Reeves, the Democratic Minority Leader in the State House, and Democratic State Senator Sidney Batch. Let's begin with an agreement to reopen North Carolina schools, Mitch. Let's remember one week ago, the reopening of North Carolina's public schools seemed to be caught in a political tug of war between North Carolina government's executive and legislative branches. The General Assembly, with almost all of the Republicans and some Democrats, had passed Senate Bill 37 to reopen the schools. Governor Cooper vetoed the bill. A veto override vote came up one vote short in the Senate. And about this time last week, Senate leaders talked about the possibility of trying to bring that override back for the floor for another vote. Well, early in this week, we started to hear some hints that there might be a compromise. We saw that there was a news conference on Tuesday that suggested there was a compromise, and then by Wednesday morning, it was done. The governor, legislative leaders from both parties, the superintendent of public instruction, all gathered together to talk about this compromise deal. It ended up sailing through the General Assembly and was signed uh, about a day later, Thursday night. So basically, the bottom line is that students should be back in in-person instruction around the 1st of April or a little bit afterward if they were in spring break. But certainly within a few weeks, all of the elementary school students are going to be in in-person instruction under what's called Plan A, which is the most open policy. Middle and high school students will be in school under either Plan A or Plan B, which requires a little bit more social distancing. The only thing that's gone now from the original three-part plans is Plan C, which was all online instruction. Governor Cooper can still come back and shut down some schools, but he could only do this district okay. by district, not statewide. So it'll be very interesting now that we see schools are heading back to reopening. Robert, you were involved in these negotiations. Fill us in. Well, I tell you, Mark, it was a really great feeling. Uh, it's the first time, I candidly, and that I've been there in seven years that you had all three going. You had the Democratic leaders, Republican leaders, and the governor really sit down and having a conversation. We heard each other, we discussed with each other, and I think some true compromises were made. And that was great, not only obviously for us, but more importantly for North Carolina citizens, because as we all know, a lot of the children have been anxious to have some finality and to know what's going to happen, parents so also. So it's really been a good feeling. It's been a good week. Way in here, Sydney. Yeah, it is a really great feeling. Sometimes we don't always reach compromise, but I think this is a rare moment in which an actual veto led to compromise from all parties. It also gives the opportunity for kids to get back into school and learning, and it allowed for teachers also to already be vaccinated, and for the governor, as Mitch earlier said, was able to close schools down, not just across the board, but can do it one by one if the numbers tick up and if there's an issue with regards to those classes. Donna, put this in context, please. 
Well, for us in our house and lots of houses across the state, this was a really exciting announcement. My daughter is a ninth grader. She's been uh, out of school for exactly a year this week, as many students have. Plan B for some Wake County students started this uh, in the last month or so. That's just really not working very well for most students. They're only there a few days a month tops. Um, so from here, parents are still apprehensive, trying to see if we can catch the kids up. Uh, if it's even possible, and can they really trust those who shut it down in the first place to make those kids whole as they move through this? You know, a lot of private schools have been open. Uh, parents have been moving their kids in droves to other school choice alternatives. So one of the things I think will come of this is that it may have awoken a, a beast. Parents and, and uh, North Carolinians who perhaps didn't follow local politics or state politics, now they do because their children have suffered, their parents have suffered. And I think a lot of attention from parents is turning to local education authorities because they will be the ones making the decision between plan A and plan B for middle and high school. Mitch, wrap this up in about 20 seconds. What changed in a week though? Well, I think certainly all sides saw that parents and the public in general wanted to get the kids back in school. Uh, it could have turned into a longer lasting political fight, but they all decided, hey, we all want to get the schools back. One of the things that really struck me was the fact that Governor Cooper and Senator Phil Berger, who've been on the opposite sides of so many debates, were actually on the same stage saying nice things about each other. Okay, Robert, there was other business down at the General Assembly this week. Talk to us about that, my friend. Well, Martin, the good thing was uh, once we got that done, it was a rather uneventful week, uh, We, but we had some really good legislation coming through. The first legislation I think would resonate with everybody was an unemployment bill, and that passed the Senate unanimously, unanimously um, on Tuesday, and it's tackling some real problems that we're having with unemployment. One thing it is doing is reinstating a work search requirement for unemployment benefits, but I do believe that the bill will make considerations for the type of searches and not be quite as stringent as it was pre-COVID. Secondly, it postpones a planned unemployment tax hike for businesses, which is so important if you have a small business or even larger businesses at this point in time. And so it allows them still time to catch up and to get reopened in a good way economically. And thirdly, and most importantly for most of us, it extends COVID-related benefits for unemployed workers through the end of the year, and it allows people to stack back-to-back -back benefit periods for COVID unemployment and regular unemployment. Um, all this came from a legislative oversight committee. It still has to pass the House, but a, a similar bill is already making its way through the House, so I have no doubt that we'll have a good positive vote on this. Go Secondly, you had, two veterans. Oh, you had two veterans' bills come through that I thought were really good. One, helping children or armed forces members to establish domicile for purposes of school, and the other to no longer require income tax of veterans. Okay, that is, a, uh, do you think that's a possibility, uh, Robert, that the veterans won't have to pay income tax? 30 states have it. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say, Mark. You've got 30 states that already have this, and I do think it's a possibility. We've always uh, tried to make sure that we were a friendly state to our military, and I think this is just one of a lot of steps that we still need to take, and, and I think it's positively supported by both sides. We've really got some good veterans in the House that have this conversation. Donna, what have you been following? So the Senate is taking another bite at the apple and uh, requiring sheriffs to cooperate with uh, immigration, federal immigration enforcement officials. Uh, the new require cooperation with ICE 2.0 passed the Senate this week. It requires local sheriffs to participate or to cooperate uh, with ICE officials when it comes to uh, people who are being held in custody for violent crimes. That, uh, so that made its way through the Senate. We'll probably see that come up again. That was a party line vote, wasn't it, Sydney? Yes, it was, actually.
uh, for the most, yes, it was. And what I was actually really interested in this week that didn't get a lot of attention is a bill that's moving through the Senate called Helping Families in Crisis. That's a bill that actually will allow parents whose children are temporarily removed from their custody to be able to stay on Medicaid. Now, if the current law is, is that the parents are removed from Medicaid and that it makes it very difficult for them to get substance abuse and mental health services. And so if this changes and we actually have this legislation passed, it will actually change the landscape of child welfare and expedite permanency for the kids in the foster care system. One thing we haven't talked about, Mitch, is the Emergency Powers Act that's maybe rewritten, correct? Yeah, that was one of the items that's likely to get a lot of contention, and that is this idea of changing the Emergency Management Act to rein in uh, the, the governor's powers, because basically we've all seen that Governor Cooper has had fairly unlimited power over the past year to put in place emergency orders. The General Assembly, at least the legislative leaders, especially Republican House leaders, have been talking about ways to rein in those powers. Another item that's going to divide, I think, the legislature is some of this legislation dealing with concealed carry. We saw some long debate in the State House over a couple of bills dealing with expanding concealed carry uh, requirements. Okay, I want to move on because this is a topic I've been following for a long time, and that's the pandemic. And unfortunately, one of the uh, problems with the pandemic, we've seen uh, uh, opioid use and deaths uh, rise, haven't we, Donna? We really have. Uh, new CDC data shows that North Carolina uh, opioid addiction is up almost 20% since the beginning of the pandemic shutdowns. And that has really been attributed to isolation. Folks uh, are becoming, you know, more depressed. If they're struggling with with addiction in the first place, they're not getting the treatment that they need. Or if they do, it's by Zoom. It's perhaps not as effective. Uh, but it's really just sort of the tip of the iceberg, which we may be seeing for years to come. Uh, pro health providers are saying that suicides are up 1,000%. Mental health calls are up 850%. Alcohol sales are up 250%. And prescription for anti-anxiety medicine has has doubled in all this. It really says that human beings need to be together. They need to be able to get the help and support that they need to prevent a lot of these things that we've seen pop up during the pandemic. So it's given us a real uh, sense of how bad this could be. Now, this all comes as North Carolina is a, about to get about uh, $19 million in a settlement with McKenzie, the consulting group. Um, McKenzie made a settlement with about 47 states. Uh, they operated uh, consulting to a lot of the opioid manufacturers. Attorney and General Stein was involved in that, correct? That's correct. And he says that that $19 million will go to directly to helping uh, opioid recovery programs around the state. So this is a long battle. We're really, you know, only halfway through it and maybe not even, uh, but we've seen it accelerate dramatically during COVID shutdowns. Sydney, these opioid deaths put a real hit on foster care systems, don't they? Yes, they have actually had a devastating effect. What we've seen over the course of time is that parents who are struggling with addiction previously, um, but then subsequently aren't able to get treatment or isolation, as Donna said before, are really seeing an uptick. And the result is, is that children are coming into the foster care, especially in certain areas of our state at a disproportionate rate, which results in the fact that a lot of foster families, we don't have enough foster parents to take children in. And some foster families during the pandemic have actually not taken children in because of COVID. So what we've seen is that in some DSS agencies, they actually have children living in social services offices right now with social workers taking care of them 24-7 simply because there is a greater need and we need to have more foster parents and more investment and resources into the child welfare system. There's a bill that's going to give the overdose, what is that called, naloxone? Is that, Robert, uh, that, that you can prescribe for people if they get opioids and they can come back, uh, that, that, uh, that brings them back after they've OD'd? 
Yes, and and, and I, there are a couple of things going on. And I think one of the things you're talking about also the Narcan, so that if yeah. somebody does OD, that they can get brought back. And we're hoping that something like that does happen so that we're able to get more money into it. Because one of the things that we lose, especially in the middle of this pandemic, is the thought of lost resources. And that's been a big problem with the opioid fight is that when we finally did get a chance to start focusing resources on opioids, then the pandemic happened, those resources have shifted. Mitch? Well, one of the keys about this whole issue is that the opioid uh, spike puts into stark relief the fact that there are negative unintended consequences of the actions that had to be taken to deal with COVID-19. Uh, whether you think the lockdowns lasted longer than they should have or not, there are going to be some other health consequences, including COVID, uh, including the, the opioid situation that we're going to be dealing with for years and years because of this pandemic. It's not just COVID-19. It's all of the things that went along with it. Including students uh, being set back for what years possibly? Yeah, there was one uh, report that said that some students who've been out have lost 12 to 16 months of learning that they would have had from in-person instruction. This is something that's not going to be solved in a matter of weeks, months, probably years. Sydney, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, please, if you would. Yeah, so I think that right now we're looking at a situation in which we need to have heavy investment. Fortunately, we have more revenue in the state than we had before. We need to really take the settlement the AG has had and also a lot of the resources that we can to have a robust system so that anyone who needs help with substance abuse treatment can have access to those services. Sydney, I want to come right back to you. There was a labor report on consumer costs and energy costs. Fill us in. Sure. So we've seen that the growth with regards, or at least the rate with regards to gas prices has been pretty low because demand was low. But now with vaccinations being readily available, economy starting to open and people really honestly just being tired of being home and wanting to travel, gas prices are going up. A New York Times article this week actually said that by the end of the summer, it might be up to $4. That's great if you're an energy exec or a company, but it isn't so great if you're actually a family working uh, every single day, paycheck to paycheck, and having to figure out how you're going to deal with those increased costs. Currently in the General Assembly, on the House side. House leadership is actually me meeting behind closed doors. There's very little known about this. But right now, it's House leadership, also uh, lobbyists from the energy sector. And then they also have uh, Duke Energy, who are sitting there trying to figure out how we're going to address the energy sector. We're a fast-growing state. The demands for energy aren't going to change. And so we're trying to figure out how we hammer out how to make sure that we have a robust energy sector for the growing needs of North Carolina. Mitch, Saudi Arabia is shutting down a spigot right now, aren't they, due to the pipeline being shut down, you think? Yeah, we certainly see that the that folks outside of the U.S. who control energy resources are always playing games one way or the other. The thing that's that's interesting to me is that the current impact on the gas prices may be temporary, but I think this is also something that we're going to have to look at in the weeks, months, and years to come because of Biden administration energy policies. The Trump administration was certainly for all energy and getting as much of it out of the, the U.S. resources as possible. The Biden administration has more environmental concerns than the Trump administration seemed to. So if, we have, if we're turning off the spigot here, that means we need to look uh, elsewhere, and that'll mean higher prices. A lot of Western Democratic governors want uh, the pipelines to go forward, and they want to be able to explore uh, oil and gas leases on federal lands, don't they? Yeah, that's certainly true. You see that... Uh, seeming to break down less along party lines and more along the lines of, are you a state that has a lot of these energy resources or not? Donna, what's the political impact in the midterms, you think, if you're, we're paying $4 for gas? 
Oh, I think it could be huge because it's not just those who are driving or want to get out. It's really it's grocery prices for trucking. It's, uh, you know, flights. It's everything that uses these energy resources. If, if that price goes up, all the prices go up. And that can really impact the 22 elections uh, because it's going they're going to say, you know, are you better off now than you were then? And gas prices are a big driver of how people vote. Well, the other thing we're talking about is inflation here, because if things go up, uh, the, the cost of the debt, interest rates may go up. Right, Robert? Yes, and that's a concern that's uh, been out there about what we're going to do with uh, lending rates. Now, when you've got one school of thought that says that the jumps that we're going to see are going to be temporary and that inflation may jump up as much as 2.5 percent, but we'll be dropping back down. But of course, the feds take the position that if it stays, if it sustains at 2% or more, that's when they start increasing lending rates and that's what, and interest rates, and that's what people are concerned about. Sydney, wrap this up in about a minute, please. Sure. So North Carolina, we're on little is known about this, but we're second in solar and solar energy uh, in 2019. And we also have we're six in nuclear power. We have a very diverse and robust uh, power grid and energy system, very contrary to what Texas saw in the past in the coming year in the coming last week, rather. And so what we really need to do and focus on is trying to figure out how we leverage the renewable energy that we have, uh, the gas and other energy sectors to make sure that it doesn't actually un unnecessarily bear, um, as Donna said, on the families that are going to have a very difficult time trying to keep up with inflation due to the rising cost of energy. Great wrap. Okay, I want to move on to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. Earlier this week, without comment, the U.S. Supreme Court put the final nail into the last election-related lawsuit uh, dealing with the 2020 presidential election. This one was called Trump versus Wisconsin Election Commission. And it was interesting to note that of the number of lawsuits that were related to the election, more than two dozen of them filed either by President Trump or by people on his behalf. All of them ended up being thrown out on technicalities or because of the timing. None of them went through to a trial on the merits. And of course, that makes sense because it was mooted. President Biden is in office now. But one of the downsides of that, and this was shown in a, a Rasmussen poll uh, that came out last month, is that there are a lot of people who still don't believe that the election came out in the way that it should. 61% of Republicans, according to that Rasmussen poll, and 36% of voters overall, so more than one in three, still don't think that President Biden won the president's presidential election fairly. That's bad news, whatever you think of President Biden, that so many people don't think that election was legitimate. Mitch, could that be a lingering issue in 2022? It certainly could be in 2022 and maybe even in 2024. We saw that a lot of people who thought that President Trump didn't win uh, legitimately in 2016 still had concerns going into the 2020 election. So I think this is something that is going to be uh, have a lasting impact that we're going to need to address in the future. Donna, underreported, please. So, of course, uh, this month, March, is Women's History Month. And we see a lot of uh, amazing women, scientists, artists, uh, thought leaders, policy leaders were recognized this month in a variety of mediums. I think one of the underreported things were there were not a lot of conservative women. I didn't see Amy Comey Barrett, the youngest woman to serve in the Supreme Court, was not mentioned in any of the places that I saw. We didn't see uh, much about Martha McSally, the first woman to fly in combat, uh, or about Carla Provost, the first woman to lead the Border Patrol. I think underreported were a lot of the conservative women who've really broken uh, glass ceilings and broken ground in their professions this year. Robert, underreported, please, my friend. 
One in five Americans has at least one dose of the vaccine, and that is huge because when you think about where we were just six weeks ago and looking at where we are now, we've gone from projections of us being in a good place to return to normalcy around July to even moving that up to May, um, that President Biden's thinking that we'll have a vaccine available for at least every adult that wants to take the vaccine. And we'll have vaccine diplomacy. I think Biden said last night there were I saw somewhere that uh, we'll start helping other countries as well. Sydney, underreported, yes. please. Um, so we saw that Mayor Carlin got appointed as the attorney general. Uh, he said that his first order of business was to prosecute to the fullest extent the Capitol rioters. He brings a breadth of experience with him in his appointment. He was a former prosecutor, federal prosecutor, and then he also was a federal judge. Uh, he said that he wants to restore respect and dignity within the Justice Department and also make sure that his department is independent, as other AG offices have been in the past, ensuring that he is not going to be used and the AG's office will not be used as a as a political um, a political opportunity for either legislative branch or the presidential branch. So he'll be independent of the of the White House, you think? Yes. Okay, let me ask. That was a 70-30 vote, I think. That was a bipartisan vote. It was. Okay, do you think that he will will uh, continue to look into Hunter Biden's uh, problems? Heavy lies the crown. I think that what he said is that he was going to come in the first day in office and he was going to look at every single investigation, get caught up to speed and determine whether or not they needed to proceed. So I have faith that he will do so, especially given the fact that he actually had, he lauded praise from both Republicans and Democrats during his confirmation, which is rare in these days in a very partisan world. Yeah, he's very well thought of on both sides, I think. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? Who's up? The number of candidates running for the U.S. Senate seat in North Carolina in 2022. We saw a couple of new names uh, get into the race. Richard Watkins is a virologist who has gotten some attention during the whole pandemic. He's going to be seeking the Democratic nomination. And Kimberly Reinhardt, who is a former Republican who changed her affiliation because of her concerns about the Capitol riot, says she's going to run as an independent. Still, some of the, the major names are out there who have not yet declared for this race, but it's going to be a big one in 2022. Who's down? The North Carolina Association of Educators, one week after their leader uh, tweeted out that learning loss was some sort of false construct, just a week later, all of the sides in the debate got together and said kids are going back to school regardless of what the NCAE wants. Donna, who's up and who's down this week? Um, up, I'm going to say event planners. Universities and colleges are announcing that they will have in-person graduations uh, coming this spring. Johnson County said that they're going to have proms. So it's good news for those who have been sitting on the sidelines really wanting to get their uh, catered events full and, and spaces available for people to get together, conventions for industries. All of those event planners breathing a bit of a sigh of relief because it's looking positive for the spring. Uh, down, Andrew Cuomo, a sixth woman, has come out and said that she was inappropriately touched by the governor. Uh, he denies this charge as well as the other five charges, five women who have said uh, something similar. There's now a move in the New York state legislature to impeach him. Robert, who's up and who's down this week, my friend? Up the city of Durham, Merck, which is a local company, is doubling the Johnson Johnson single dose vaccine. Everybody's excited about that and excited about what it means for the entire country and not just the city of Durham. Down the sports fans of Durham. Coach K and Duke basketball have had to drop out of the ACC tournament, and it seems, based on their win-loss record, that their season is now officially over. All emails go to Robert Reeves. Who's up and who's down this week? 
I would say bipartisanship and state legislative leaders after hammering out a deal to reopen schools safely. And I think who's down is the flu. Only three people have actually died uh, this year in North Carolina from the flu. Do you attribute that to people wearing masks, Sydney? Yes, I do. So I, I think that's really good news. And I see, I, I, I say this again, but I think cases are down on COVID about 70%. I think America wants to get back to business. Mitch, what's the headline next week? Federal stimulus checks are on the way, but the extended unemployment benefits and expanded child tax credit could be weeks away. You know, Mitch, I saw that $1.9 trillion bill is more than the GDP of Canada. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, when you look at Canada, our northern neighbor, a, a great economy, but certainly dwarfed by the American economy. It's also bad news for those of us who think that the federal deficit and federal debt are problems we're going to have to deal with at some point. Donna, what's the headline next week? I think retailers see a surge in rare April back to school shopping. I think more LEAs are going to start voting to put the kids back in the classroom. You know, the other thing I saw, and I was going to say this to Mitch, they say there's $3 trillion on the sideline just waiting to get into the economy. People just, you know, they haven't been traveling, they haven't been going to school, they haven't sure. been doing a lot of things. And so I'm very bullish on America's economy right now. Okay, I headline, think, go ahead. He headline I think we're going to see a jump for a few weeks, and then, and then uh, I think some concerns about energy prices may slow it down. Headline next week, Robert. Next week, President Biden, now that the COVID uh, stimulus is done, begins the real work of trying to implement his agenda through Congress. Well, what is next on the agenda? I think that's the sort of uh, infrastructure bill, correct? Yes, that is correct. Headline next week, the Sydney. Uh, the North Carolina state uh, budget will receive over $5 billion in revenue from the federal government. Okay, great job, panel. Do we miss anything, Mitch? Well, there's certainly plenty of things that we could talk about, but we hit the highlights. I think uh, we're going to see some interesting uh, terms on the General Assembly next week. Now that we've gotten through the kumbaya of reopening schools, can they stick with that in the next week? I hope so. I'm not going to bet on it, though. Great job, guys and gals. See you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by NC Realtors. State Employees Association of North Carolina. Mary Louise and John Burris. Reifenberg Construction. Stefan Gleason. And Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.